You are listening to the CMC Podcast. Join us each week for messages designed to equip, inspire, and motivate. And now for today's message from Pastor Paul Kern. Well, we want to welcome you to church tonight. We want to welcome you to this study on James that we are right in the middle of. We're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. James 2, 1 through 13. So if you want to be turning there... One of, one of James's major themes that we're going to see in this study is that a person's real faith will be manifest in his works. It's going to be revealed in his works. James 2.26 says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We all heard that many, many times. We've heard people say faith without works is dead. If God looks at our life and he sees that we've handled trials and temptations in a godly way, if we've obeyed his word, if we've not lived a life of favoritism, then that's evidence of our salvation. That shows that you clearly have had the work of salvation happen in your life because you're seeing the fruit of salvation flowing out of your life. The apostle Paul In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, even before we were born, and I love this verse, even before we were born, God planned in advance our destiny and the good works that we would do to fulfill it. Isn't that good? God planned in advance that we would do good works. Now, good works can't produce redemption. Good works can't save us. They can't produce redemption. But genuine redemption produces an obedient and holy life that will be characterized by good works. So because of what we have had happen on the inside of us, that just wants to naturally make its way out on the outside of us. So basically what we're doing is, is we're trying to get the outside caught up with what's happened on the inside, right? We're trying to get the inside to come into, the outside to come into full agreement with what has taken place on the inside. And that's what sanctification is all about. So, living faith will be demonstrated by a holy life. All right, let's, let's read these few verses together. James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. My dear brothers and sisters, fellow believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, how could we say that we have faith in him and yet we favor one group of people over another? Suppose an influential man comes into your worship meeting wearing gold rings and expensive clothing. And also a homeless man, he comes in 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 shabby clothes. If you show special attention to the rich man in expensive clothes, and you say, well, here's a seat of honor for you right up front. But you turn and you say to the poor beggar dressed in rags, well, you can stand over here or you, you, you sit over here on the floor in the back. Then you've demonstrated gross prejudice among yourselves and used evil standards of judgment. So listen carefully, my dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in the world's eyes to be those who are rich in faith? And won't they be heirs of the kingdom realm he promised to those who love him? But yet you insult and you shun the poor in your efforts to impress the rich. Isn't the wealthy who exploit you and drag you into court, aren't they the very ones who blaspheme blaspheme the beautiful name of the one to whom you belong? Your calling is to fulfill the royal law of love 
as given to us in the scripture. You must love and value your neighbor as you love and value yourself. For keeping this law is the noble way to live. But when you show prejudice, you commit sin and you violate the royal law of love. For the one who attempts to keep all of the law of Moses but fails in just one point has become guilty of breaking the law in every respect. For the same one who tells us don't commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you're still guilty as a lawbreaker. So we must both speak and act in every respect like those who are destined to be tried by the perfect law of liberty. And remember that judgment is merciless for the one who judges others without mercy. So by showing mercy, you take dominion over judgment. Wow, great, great stuff. James shows us that God is impartial and therefore we are to be impartial. Because obviously we're supposed to imitate God. We're supposed to reflect his image. So when we think about the attributes of God, you know, we kind of go through and, and, and think about all that God is like. You know, we think about God's holiness. We think about God's righteousness. We think about God's divine nature. You know, I remember when I was in Bible college learning about God's omnipresence and God's omnipotence and God's omniscience. I remember learning about those characteristics of God. You know, I think we also think, when we think of characteristics of God, we think about God's love right? I mean, that's a big one. We think about God's mercy. We think about God as a God of of justice and faithfulness and goodness. But another attribute that, that God is, and it isn't really thought of all that much, and it isn't discussed all that much, is God's impartiality. And this is what we're going to look at here together for a few minutes. God is absolutely impartial in his dealings with people. Totally impartial. And that's one of the things that makes God very different from humans. Because, you know, obviously tonight we're all striving to be impartial. But what I tell you, it's hard. I mean, if we're just going to be really, really honest, it is hard. I am so embarrassed of how I acted in high school. You know, I wasn't saved. I didn't know the Lord. And so, you know, I, I guess I have a little bit of an excuse, but I think back through high school and, you know, in high school and everybody remembers, you know, there, there were class systems in high school. You know, there's the in people and there's the out people. There's the popular people and the unpopular people. You know, we categorize people, you know, there's the preps and, you know, there's the, the rednecks and then there's the druggies and, and, you know, they're all different kinds of people and everybody gets thrown into a different category, and you know, you go into lunch, and you go into the cafeteria, and everybody's sectioned off according to their, y'all, everybody remember that? You remember high school, and what it was like, and, and you know, and, and, and little kids, when they're real young, in, in their early years of school, everybody's the same. I mean, everybody's the same, but it's just crazy how, as you get older, you know, we get more and more complicated, and when we act more and more like the devil instead of like Jesus. You know, we tend to place people in predetermined categories. And, and we even do this on up in our adult years, and we have to fight this even as believers, and that's why James is addressing this. Now, remember, this is not for lost people. This, this letter is written to saved people. We rank people by their looks. 
We rank people by their clothes. We rank people by their race and their ethnicity. We uh, rank people by their social status and their popularity, by their personalities, um, by their intelligence, how smart they may be, or by their wealth and their position. We, we, we rate people by the kind of car that they drive or the kind of home that they live in, or where their home may reside, what neighborhood they may actually reside in. But, but what we have to understand, church, is that all of those things are non-issues with God. They make absolutely no difference to God whatsoever. God does not pay a bit of attention to any of that. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that God is a God who does not show favoritism in any way whatsoever. Moses declared, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, come on, and the Lord of lords, the great and awesome God. And then he added that this great and awesome God, who can be whoever he wants to be, who can do whatever he wants to do, does not show impartiality, I mean partiality, and will not take a bribe from anybody. Isn't that amazing? You know, y'all heard the term absolute power corrupts absolutely, unless you're God. Because he's God. And here we have God who is God, will not take a bribe, and will not show partiality to anybody. God is impartial. And God expects us to reflect that same impartiality. Oh, oh it's so hard. I, listen, church, I want to be godly. I want to honor the Lord. But, you know, I have to be honest, when somebody comes up and they're stinky and they're nasty, I mean, that's hard. I'm just being honest. When I'm stinky and nasty, I don't, I don't even want to be around me, much less want to be around anybody else who's stinky and nasty. And, you know, I've been here in our church for many, many years, and we've had a lot of stinky, nasty people come through the doors of our church. Very different from me. And I'm glad. And I'm thankful. Because God is going to make sure that he perfects us in his love. And the way that he does that is he's going to make sure that he gets some person up in your grill that makes you very uncomfortable and you are going to have to deal with them. And not only are you going to have to deal with them, you're going to have to deal with your heart after you're done dealing with them. So important. So important. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 17, God warned, You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. The Apostle Paul made it clear that God will judge everyone impartially. In Romans chapter 2, well, just turn there with me. Go to Romans chapter 2. Let's look at this one together. I've got a couple of scriptures I want to look together. Romans chapter 2 and uh, verse 9. 
It says, anyone who does evil can expect tribulation and distress. Now watch this. To the Jew first and also who? The non-Jew. But when we do what pleases God, we can expect unfading glory, true honor, and continual peace. Now watch this. To the Jew first and what? Also to the non-Jew. For God sees us all without partiality. Now, as I mentioned before, James is a very practical book. It's very practical, dealing much more with day-to-day issues than it deals with theology and doctrine. James is just teaching you and I how to roll up our sleeves and to live out our Christian life every day. That's what he's showing us. And so he stresses that our partiality or our lack of it is another test of living faith. Now, if you want to know that you're growing in your faith, just see how you treat people. You know, watch how you treat people who could offer you things, who could do things for you, who could make your life better, and then see how you treat people who can't do anything for you. They don't have anything that that you need. They can't offer you not one thing, they can do nothing for you. Do you treat them the same? See, this is the challenge that we all have. This is the the royal law. See, this is that superior life of living in Christ and reflecting him to people every single day. Do you guys remember that, the WWJD movement? Everybody remember that, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Remember the... The bracelets, the, the little bracelets, that was a big deal. That was a cool deal. I like that because, you know, I feel like, you know, the people that started that really had a genuine desire to see people acting like Jesus. You know, we need to be reminded. You know, we, we can get religious. We can. We can get religious. We get comfortable coming to church, sitting in our chair. I'll never forget. And, and you know, this lady has, her and her husband both have passed on into heaven, so I can talk about them right now. It's fair, you know, they're, you know, sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they came to our church, and, you know, this was many, many years ago. Most of you probably wouldn't even know them. Some of you might, but very few. And, you know, she had her seat. Tim knows who I'm talking about. She had her seat. Well, we had some visitors come in one Sunday, and they sat in her seat. And she came up to me, and I mean, she was livid. And she said, I want to know what you're going to do about it. And I was like, do about what? Those people. I mean, she was, they are in my seat. And I was like, now, now. You know, I tried to play it off. Oh, we just love them. No, I don't love them. They're in my seat. I mean, she. She was so worked up. And, you know, and they were new Christians. They were new believers. You know, and you asked me, well, Paul, what were you thinking? Well, what I was thinking, I'd like to take a baseball bat and beat her to a little greasy spot. No, I, but, uh, not really. But my first reaction wasn't like, God bless you. I want to go, you need to get saved. Why are you so mean? Why, I mean, these people, they need you. But, you know, it's, it's fine when it's somebody else's seat. But what about when it's our seat? And I'm not just talking about seats. You know, or you understand what I'm saying? 
It's easy to preach to other people about being impartial and not showing favoritism, but boy, when it comes to us, man, it's work. Well, several years ago, this wristband, WWJD, became very, very popular. And, and you know, I, I think as we are doing this study in James about being impartial, it would be important for us to look at our leader, Jesus. What would Jesus do? And during Jesus' time on the earth, he showed no favoritism. And we can read a lot of scriptures about Jesus' interactions with people, and he just... That wasn't how Jesus was made up. It didn't make any difference to Jesus if a person that he spoke to was a wealthy Jewish leader or they were a common beggar or a godly woman or a prostitute or a high priest or just a common worshiper, a handsome person or an ugly person, an educated person or an uneducated ignorant person, a religious or a non-religious person, a law-abiding person or a criminal. It really didn't make any difference to Jesus. And, and that's so challenging. That's hard. And I want to be like that. But church, here's the thing. We can't be like that unless we die to ourselves. That's the only way it's going to work. Because in our flesh, human beings are not impartial. We put people into categories we decide, you know, oftentimes we decide whether we like somebody based off of the first couple of words that come out of their mouth. Sometimes we decide whether we like somebody when we first see them, just based off the color of their hair or the fact that they don't have any. Be careful now. Be careful. Now, Jesus' overriding concern was the condition of a person's heart, whoever they were and whatever they had done. Let's look at an example here. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Jesus' sharing a parable. It's a very interesting parable. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. And we'll, we'll read this together. This is the story of the workers in the vineyard. So this will help you understand the way heaven's kingdom operates. All right, we'll know how heaven operates. Here's how it works. There was once a wealthy landowner who went out at daybreak to hire all the laborers that he could find to work his vineyard. After agreeing to pay them the standard day's wage, he put them to work. Then at nine o'clock, as he was passing through the town square, he found others standing around without work. And he told them, come and work for me in my vineyard and I'll pay you a fair wage. So off they went to join the others. He did the same thing around noon and again around three o'clock, making the same arrangement as he did with all the others. Now, hoping to finish his harvest that day, he went to the town square again at five o'clock in the afternoon. That's when people are getting off work. He goes at five o'clock. He found more who were idle. So he said to them, why have you been here all day without work? Well, because nobody would hire us, they answered. And so he said to them, well, go and join my crew and work in my vineyard. Well, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard went to his foreman and said, call all the laborers and line them up and pay them the same wages, starting with the most recent ones that I hired and finishing with the ones who worked all day. Now, this is about to be a heart test because who did he start with first? The ones who did the least amount of work right? 
It's interesting now. Well, verse 9, when those hired late in the day came to be paid, they were given a full day's wage. And when those who'd been hired first came to be paid, they were convinced that they would receive more. But everyone was paid the standard wage. Well, when they realized what had happened, they were offended. They complained to the landowner, saying, you're treating us unfairly. They've only worked for one hour while we've slaved and sweated all day under the scorching sun. You've made them equal to us. Now watch this reply. Friends, I'm not being unfair. I'm doing exactly what I said. Didn't you agree to work for the standard wage? Now, if I want to give those who only work for an hour equal pay, what does that matter to you? Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with what is mine? Why should my generosity, watch this, why should my generosity make you jealous of them? It's a very interesting parable. It'd be hard, you know, now once again, when we read the Bible, you, you insert yourself. Go ahead, slide their sandals on your feet, put yourself right there. You're the worker who worked all day long. And here's these turkeys down here that worked an hour. I mean, they barely even broke a sweat. Got the same amount of money as you got. Now, the landowner who hired the workers sent them to begin working at various times throughout the day. And at the end of the day, the men discovered that they were all being paid the same amount of money, the same, exact same amount. Those who had worked all day complained about those who started working at the end of the day because they got the exact same wage that they received. And the landowner replied, friends, I'm not being unfair. I'm doing exactly what I said. Didn't you agree to work for the standard wage? Now, the point Jesus was making, and the point that we need to see is that those who are saved at the last minute of their lives are going to enjoy the same glories of heaven as those of us who have lived for the Lord for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. <clears throat> the length of their salvation, just like a person's wealth or fame or intelligence or social status or other worldly measurements, those are not factors in salvation. They're not even considered. It has nothing to do with that. So the parable shows God's impartiality by giving the same eternal life to everyone. Aren't you glad? In the same way, we see this in the wedding feast. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Just flip over a little bit. Matthew 22, verse 9 and 10. The invited guests failed to show up. And so here's what happened. Now, I want you to go into the streets and the alleyways and invite everyone, anyone that you can find to come and join the feast of honor for my son. So the servants went out to the city streets. They invited everyone to come to the wedding feast, good and bad alike, until the banquet hall was crammed full of people. Now, once again, we see Jesus' impartiality calls all 
people. And if they have saving faith, nothing else about their status matters. Doesn't matter how long you've been saved. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter how many scriptures you've had memorized. It doesn't matter how much money you've tithed to the church. It doesn't matter any of those things. None of that has anything to do with salvation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Let's look at another one together. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Now, I want to go back while you're turning there. And and when we read the passages of James, he talked about one of the big problems that they were having was showing partiality to wealthy people. You know, there were wealthy people and there were poor people in the church. You know, we have people in our church that have different uh, financial statuses. We have, you know, lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class, wealthy. We've got all different kinds of people in our church. And most churches are like that. Most churches have different categories of people. The issue that they were running into in their church when visitors would come in or people that were there in their church, they would give them special preference. They would give them more voice, more ear, more concern than they would other people. So like, let's say that there was a person in the church and, you know, they weren't wealthy, they were poor, and they came up with a concern, well, they wouldn't really give them the time of day where if this person over here who had a lot of material wealth, if they came up and said something, then they would really listen to them and give them their ear and implement whatever it was that they wanted. You know, Tim and I have watched this play out in churches throughout the years with church leaders. And, you know, every, every pastor will be challenged with this. Every man of God will, and, and ultimately, even in your own personal lives, you'll, you'll be faced with having to make a decision about what kind of person are you going to be? What kind of Christian are you going to be? You know, every, every leader w- will be faced with this temptation. See, that's why in our church, we don't know who gives or what they give. Tim doesn't see that. I don't see that. We don't look at that because we don't want to know. We want to preach what God has laid on our heart to preach. Josh doesn't look at that. He doesn't know. We want to be able to get up, clear conscience, under the authority and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and preach the Word of God to anybody and everybody. And we have done that for all these years, and there have been people that have left, that had means. But we have watched pastors who, because they did know, they didn't want to ruffle their feathers, they didn't want to upset them, and so what they did is they changed what they preached. And they began to preach a watered-down message that would, the Bible describes as, tickling the ears of the hearer, and basically they become a seeker-friendly church, but you become a church that is impotent and sterile 
See, you're not preaching a word that changes and transforms hearts and lives. You're preaching a watered-down word that won't do anything for anybody. And now we're not really a church. We're just a country club. We're just coming and hanging out. We're like the Kiwanis or anybody else. You know, we're just a little, uh, little get-together. But we're not doing God's business. And this is what James is cautioning the people in. Now, now if, if you're not to Romans 15, by now, forget it. Look at your neighbor. Romans 15, verse 5. May God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as it is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. We are to accept each other just as God has accepted us. Now, in heaven, there's neither male nor female, right? There isn't. We're, we're spirit. <clears throat> so, here in our church, obviously, there is a difference. There is male and female. There are differences. And the Bible talks about making sure that we compensate and we recognize those differences, especially it talks about this in marriage. But when it comes to how we treat people, we are to treat everyone equally, just like it says here. Therefore, verse 7, accept each other as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. And earlier in the letter, Paul said, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I had nothing to offer God. God had nothing to gain from me. What can I offer God? All I had to offer God was a rebellious heart and a stained, sin-stained life. That's all I had to offer God. But I'm so glad because of God's great love and that God is impartial that God picked me. The most undeserving of any people, God picked me. And God gave me a seat at his table. You don't know if you guys are familiar with the story of Mephibosheth. It's a very interesting story. Is a, basically a lot of descendants had died out and they were trying to, you know, find somebody that they could, you know, honor. And, and they found Mephibosheth, who was a distant relative, forgot about. And, you know, it's really sad because um, his nurse was carrying him when he was a child and she was in a hurry to flee, and she dropped him and crippled him from, from a very young age. And he was crippled his entire life. And, you know, the king got word that Mephibosheth was the living relative, but he was crippled. And he said, I want, I want you to bring him here because I'm going to give him a seat at my table. And I think about Mephibosheth 
sitting, you know, getting an opportunity, coming in, and, and the king, <laughs> it's like the president. Hey, man, why don't you, you sit right here by me? Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. I want you to sit right here by me. <laughs> and he sits down, and he pulls up his chair. And he starts looking all around the table. Now, I don't know if y'all have ever noticed this, if you've ever really thought about this. But we have people over for Sunday lunch, and we had a big group over this past Sunday. We had eight people at our house, and my wife cooked up an awesome meal, and we fed a whole bunch of young people at our house. And I was looking around the table, and all I could see is from the waist up. That's all I saw. And when Mephibosheth was sitting at that table crippled and lame, guess what everybody saw? Him from the waist up. And I think God wants us to be that way with people. God wants us to see people from the waist up. As I close, there's only really one form of favoritism the Lord honors, and that's found in Philippians 2.3. And Philippians 2.3 says this, With humility of mind, we regard one another as more important than ourselves. Amen? Amen. Y'all stand with me tonight. Let's give God a hand clap. God, tonight, we ask, Lord, that you help us. So challenging, God, to die to our flesh. But God, we want to be people that honor you. God, we want to be a real church. And we want to be real Christians. God, we don't want to be fake. We want our our works to be evident. The proof of our redemption. And God, we ask that you help us, Lord, to treat everybody the same. People of different colors, people of different social statuses and and intellect, people from different walks of life. God, help us. Help us, God, to love one another and accept one another just as Christ accepted us. And in doing so, God, we can be the true church that you intended us to to be. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us, that you accept us and you forgive us. And God, you are an impartial judge and God. Thank you, Lord, tonight. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. You have been listening to the CMC podcast. For more information about CMC, our different conferences, Christian school, college internship, resources, and more, go to cmchurch.com. 